The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the annual Avia Luncheon and presentation of speakers today. We have some great things lined up for you today. And first of all, my name is Chris Prentice. I am president of the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys. And we have several here present that are with us in Omaha. And we're going to go around the tables here and and have each of them introduce themselves and tell you where they're from and what they did as a career or what they currently do as a career. As I said, I'm president. I live in Leveland, Texas, and I'm an assistant district attorney. I've been practicing law for about 35 years. And we'll go to the next person, and we'll uh, go through this quickly. I'm Steve Mendelson. Uh, I'm a retired attorney. I spent my career working in disability rights uh, area in various capacities. Uh, and uh, now I spend my time as a retiree, mostly just annoying people on behalf of good causes. Hi, I'm Swapananda Kumar. I am the advocacy specialist here at ECB, and I'm from D.C., Hi, I'm Steve Blow. I'm uh, currently retired, but I spent uh, 37 years at the Department of Public Service in New York, mostly dealing with environmental law, power plants and transmission line applications. And then um, after my two-year bar, I uh, worked for a private law firm for 21 months doing the same thing. So I liked retirement so much, I retired twice. Good afternoon and good evening to our friends in the UK. My name is Chris Bell. I currently live in the state of North Carolina. I'm a retired attorney. I did uh, disability rights law in several capacities for many years. I was involved in the writing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and I oversaw the regulations uh, promulgated by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And I then went into private practice representing employers and training employers on compliance with the ADA and helping them with ADA issues. And then I retired. And and now, like uh, Mr. Mendelson, I I harass people on disability issues for the American Council of the Blind. This is Hazel Fields. I'm from Columbia, Missouri. And um, I had two jobs before going to law school, one with the state of Missouri and one with the federal government. Then I went to law school, and then I went into private practice, and I'm mostly retired now, but I I did practice some family law, and now I want to become more involved with blindness organizations, so I am currently president of the Tiger Council of the Blind in Columbia. Thank you. I'm Ellen Telker. I'm from Milford, Connecticut. I practice as a solo practitioner before I retired. And I did family law and some social security and a little bit of ADA stuff. And now I'm currently president of the American Council of the Blind of Connecticut. And so that's that's my story. Last but not least, uh, I'm Eric. I'm from San Antonio. I work in cybersecurity. That's all I got. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate you being here with us today. I'm going to turn the mic over to Steve Mendelson. He's going to introduce our special guest speaker today, and and we will move forward with that. Steve? Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I shouldn't say good afternoon to everyone because we have here today uh, a wonderful opportunity to hear from a guest speaker for whom it's evening because he's joining us from London, and that is uh, Barrister 
Adal Ibrar, who will tell us about his career, uh, about uh, some of the uh, different structural issues and some of the similarities uh, between practices of law in the UK and in the US, and about his experiences uh, as a blind person uh, getting an education and doing his work. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce and express our profound gratitude to Adal for being with us. We're only sorry that he couldn't be here in person as he had initially planned to do. We would have taken him to his first baseball game last night, but that wasn't possible. Hopefully it will be in the future. So Adal, welcome and thank you. And the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Steve. And uh, thank you to the ACB and the lawyers division for hosting and allowing me to speak to you guys today. As uh, Steve has said, apologies that I can't be with you in person. Unfortunately, our, our friend COVID has stepped in uh, just as I was about to board the plane. That has uh, left me speaking to you remotely. And as Steve says, hopefully I can join you all next year, I understand, in Chicago for next year's uh, conference. Now, I also have a colleague, uh, Jeremy Brown, who will hopefully be joining us. I'm not sure if he's on the link. I can't see him at the moment. Hopefully Jeremy can join us uh, later. Uh, wonders of technology being... Uh, what they are. So for today, I've uh, got a few topics lined up, and I'm happy to take questions from anybody uh, throughout. Uh, so if anybody wants to raise their hand, hopefully the host can uh, can let me know. And if anybody in the uh, Omaha room wishes to ask any questions, uh, please don't hesitate at any point just to uh, stop me, and I'll be happy to answer any questions. So I want to start off today by just discussing the structure of the legal system in the UK. And, and briefly, the, the, the key differences are that the system here is separated into two component parts. So you have solicitors and then you have barristers. And in simple terms, solicitors deal with the day-to-day litigation of a case and barristers are the trial advocates. That's been the historical position for many centuries, though over the past 30-odd years, this has somewhat changed and there is now somewhat of a bleed-through, whereas there are solicitors who can conduct advocacy in the higher courts, whereas they couldn't in the past, and there are barristers who can conduct litigation, whereas it was something that they would not do in the past. In the case of barristers conducting litigation, uh, I'm one of the less than, I believe, 5% of barristers who do conduct litigation. And in terms of solicitors, uh, I'm not sure what the figures currently are, but there are only a handful of solicitors who have what are called higher rights and who can appear in all the courts of England and Wales. That's the key difference and has been uh, for centuries. In terms of the role of solicitors in terms of qualification, This is largely similar. So at the outset, all who intend to practice law start off with a degree, a law degree. And this is a standard qualifying LLB law degree. And following that degree, it severs into two distinct qualifications. One is the bar training course for barristers. And the other one, which was once called the LPC, the legal practice course, is now called the solicitor's qualification examination, the SQE. And this is the key training difference, though everyone starts at the same point as as an undergraduate degree. If your undergraduate degree is not a law degree, then you will take the route that I took, and that would be to take what is called a conversion course, a graduate diploma in law, which is a one-year conversion 
which then allows you to have the equivalent of the degree and go into either the solicitor's route or the barrister's uh, training program. So in essence, uh, I'll start off by talking about barristers. I was hoping Jeremy would deal with the solicitor's side, but the barrister's training course is a one-year course, which is not so much a law course, more a practical training course dealing with uh, the written and oral advocacy. The course runs over some seven or eight modules, depending on when you take it, covering all the standard practice requirements, opinion writing, drafting, ethics. So as Jeremy has now joined us, uh, Jeremy, perhaps you can uh, discuss the solicitor's part, and I'll go back to the barrister's training course uh, once you've dealt with uh, life as a solicitor and the training course uh, yes. to get through that role. Good uh, afternoon. My name is Jeremy Brown. I'm a retired solicitor. I retired two or three years ago from private practice and spent my professional life in a series of small firms, eventually becoming a partner in them, mainly undertaking what we would call in this country public law work, that is work involving representation of children and parents in proceedings taken by local authorities or their equivalent bodies. So mainly court work, uh, which sort of obviously colours what I say about my life as a solicitor. So I was mainly litigation, quite a lot of time actually in courts and the rest of it in the office and beating my head against a number of brick walls, or so it felt on occasions anyway. To get into the solicitor's profession, again, as with a barrister, as Adal was just about to explain, a a law degree is now essential. That didn't used to be the case, but uh, is now. Well, no, actually, a degree is essential. I'll I'll slightly rephrase, rephrase that. A degree is essential. And there are then two potential ways into the profession, depending on what degree you have. So if you have a law degree, you then move on to a one-year training course, which is called the legal practice course, and that's run by a number of institutions, to then sit exams at the end of that course. And then the idea is to obtain a training contract with a firm of solicitors for a further two years. So it's, if you like, a three-stage process, law degree, legal practice course, training contract, and then hopefully qualifying as a solicitor at the end of that contract. The attrition rate, I think, is fairly large, particularly for visually impaired people. And there are those hurdles at each stage to jump through. The hurdles from degree to LPC are not great. Getting a training contract is more difficult. Finding a job once your training contract to, has come to an end is probably more difficult still. If you have a degree that's other than a law degree, then it becomes a two-year course, the first one being a graduate diploma, and that then, if you pass that, qualifies you to go on to the legal practice course. So there is an additional year if you don't have a law degree but do have a degree in some other subject. I think you wanted us to talk about the technology. I don't know whether this would be an appropriate time to go on and deal with that as solicitor or whether, Adal, you would like to take up the process of becoming a barrister so that we can deal with all that at one go. Yeah, I can deal with the the, the barrister side. So uh, as Jeremy says, once you complete the degree and assuming you, you, you pass that, 
uh, becoming a barrister is slightly more involved than becoming a solicitor in the sense that you have to apply to get on to the bar training course, uh, which is the professional qualification part of becoming a barrister. Now, that is less straightforward than it would be to get onto the solicitor's course, mainly because places are extremely limited and the criteria is far more stringent. So there are around about 12,000 barristers in, in, in the UK practicing at the moment. In comparison, there are approximately 180,000 solicitors practicing. Uh, the number of barristers in practice hasn't changed significantly over the past 10 years, whereas the number of solicitors has gone up by approximately 50%. So the, the, the requirement, firstly, there is the academic requirement, which is which uh, those who want to become a barrister need to fulfill. And largely, that is the requirement to have generally a first class degree. The other more difficult requirement to fulfill for the average candidate is the cost requirement. Uh, the cost requirement to become a barrister is quite prohibitive in that it is far more expensive. It is twice the cost of a degree, or it was when I certainly did it. And unless you have a scholarship, only the very wealthiest families can send their children in to practice law. And this has become one of the major criticisms of the, uh, the barrister's profession in that generally most are white, and are male, and are of the more wealthy families. And, and it's become a fashion, I say, from, from my uh, recent experience of bar school, that uh, a lot of foreign students attend the UK bar qualifications merely as a status symbol. Uh, and I can recall a handful of students telling me that they had no intention of practicing law, and they simply wanted to attend the course so that their parents, who were aristocrats in foreign jurisdictions could simply show them off as um, British barristers. And this is a, a, a bit of a problem which the, the regulators in this country and the educational institutions are trying to address. So those are the hurdles in getting in. Anyone who wishes to become a barrister in the UK has to join one of the four inns of court. The joining process is relatively straightforward, but as part of your qualification process, there are a series of lectures or dinners that one must sit over the period of the year whilst you're taking the bar training course. And these are traditional dinners, which uh, one uh, attends for normally up to two hours. And uh, they cover normally attending judges and lecturers and and whatnot. It is more a historical relic of the past, a means of socialising with the upper classes and judges and uh, effectively the route into the bar. And anyone who attends them will, most will say that they are more a, a hurdle or more often than not when I was attending, they are a, a good time to catch up on sleep from the, the long day of study. But uh, they are and everyone must attend them. If you can get through that level, then there is the final stage of qualification as a barrister, which is the practical stage, very similar to that that solicitors have. It is a requirement that you have to become a pupil to a barrister uh, for a period of one year, and then you remain under supervision for the first three years of your practice before you're let loose on your own in front of the general public. 
And this is the most difficult part, particularly for those who are visually impaired. There was a time where obtaining pupillage was straightforward as uh, approaching a chambers and they would take you on and wouldn't have to pay you. But now they have to actually pay you. Effectively, a, a senior barrister has to dip into his own pocket for a year and pay you uh, a, an ever-increasing salary for that period of time. It has become far more difficult. And it, this is also another criticism that uh, friends and friends of friends effectively uh, get into the profession uh, through that route, whereas others who don't have the connections that uh, the older families would have are somewhat disadvantaged. And I'll go on to talk about technology and uh, the use of technology in practice when I come to discuss uh, my life as a, as a practicing barrister. But I'll, I'll go to Jeremy, who can talk to you about a, the solicitor's life before I get to that. I think it's fair to say that one of the hurdles, again, to becoming a solicitor is, is the cost of doing so. In this country, we have, as I believe you do in the States, student loans, which when you obtain a degree or when you're taking a degree, you're eligible for a student loan, and that is repayable over your lifetime once your salary reaches a certain amount. For the graduate diploma and legal practice course, those student loans are not available. So you may spend one or two years as a student without any government student loan financial backing at all. There are bank loans available. Those are quite expensive, as as you may well imagine, to cover the course fees. But of course, they don't necessarily cover your living expenses. And it's not uncommon for people to run up debts in the region of thirty, forty thousand pounds plus their student loan in order to qualify. Many students, of course, are able to defray some of those costs by taking a part-time job, working in hospitality in the evenings, that sort of thing. But those opportunities are not open to those with visual impairment. Again, I'm sure you can understand. So there is an added hurdle there in terms of finance. Trainee solicitors are then are paid a salary. So once you've got a job, you do actually get paid for it. It's not great pay, but it's survivable. And of course, once you, you have a job, then you're able to, uh, to earn more properly. As a side issue in criminal law at the moment, uh, barristers last week went on strike on the basis that their pay has not been improved for a number of years. And if you calculate what they earn on an hourly basis, some are working at below the minimum wage, which in this country is something like £9.50 an hour. So there is at the moment, particularly at the bar, and particularly at the criminal bar, certainly I think there will be more strikes in the future. And it's an issue that's been rumbling away for at least the last 10 years. And obviously, those sort of rates discourage people from joining the profession at all and certainly exacerbate the trends that Adal was talking about. My life as, as a solicitor, well, I've told you what my main focus was. That involves a lot of court work and a number of issues really dealing with clients in the office and then representing them in court. I was lucky, I suppose, in that I had a personal assistant who could initially act as a reader, but as time went on and technology improved, I didn't need that nearly so much. I heard one of you as I was um, listening saying that I think you'd practiced for 37 years and I 
have a feeling that you may have started with similar technologies to me. And that is, uh, in order to make notes of the client interviews, I needed something quiet. So we're talking about the late 1970s, early 80s now. I used a hand frame simply because it was quiet and not intrusive when you're trying to listen to what a client's telling you. And I used a Perkins Brailler to make notes on what I would need in court. So you can imagine that you don't really want to take a Perkins into court with you whilst you're trying to cross-examine a witness. So again, my notes in court were done on a small pocket frame with little bits of plastic or paper scattered all over the place in the hope that I could then retrieve them and remember what I was trying to ask. By and large, it worked as a system coupled with a reader to read files to me when when I needed them. But obviously, as time goes on, you become more confident in what you actually need and also learn what you don't need, which is a considerable time saver. Gradually, as uh, computerized technology came in, more and more people started to use it. And I now, and certainly for the last few years, well, probably the last 10 or 15 years working, was using products created by Humanware, which again, many of you may know of, using a Versa Braille and in the end a Braille Note Touch, which in effect acts as a tablet, gives me internet access, emails. And that meant that I could access documents far more easily that were filed in court. One of the difficulties of working in care proceedings, uh, public law proceedings involving children, is that the documents sent into court tend to probably increase in size as you go along and you can wind up with a bundle before the judge that's over a thousand pages long. Now, I found that personally just impossible to deal with. Very difficult to work your way through a bundle of that sort of length and very difficult to identify documents as you go along. So I developed a system in the end of putting the documents I needed on memory stick and just simply taking those with me and anything that I that cropped up in court that I suddenly found I needed, I'd just have to get as I went along. So I'd take the index and I'd take all the documents that I thought I would need. Perhaps not surprisingly, in a bundle of that size, you find that the vast majority of it you don't need because it's referring to old court orders, old documents that are no longer relevant, plans that people produce that are now no longer relevant because circumstances have changed, old social services documents, all that sort of thing, which has to be in the bundle. Well, the theory goes has to be in the bundle, although I think many judges would probably disagree with that for completeness sake. But actually, when you get into court and are arguing a case, the documents you need I found at least reduced considerably to something more manageable. So I would use, as I say, the uh, the Braille Note Touch plus a memory stick. Life was considerably easier when, as now, most things are done by email. The firm I was with is now completely paperless. So the large files are becoming a thing of the past. And as more communication is done by email and more resources are available on the internet, the use of technology and what technology can do has become much easier and much more widespread. So by the end of my working life, although I would dictate letters to clients and my PA would type them, because you can't assume clients are on email, almost everything 
that was communications with other solicitors or with courts or with counsel, with barristers, was done by email. That helped enormously, and the the amount of accessibility increased what I could do personally massively, certainly in the last 15 or so years of, uh, of my working life. The other aspect, I suppose, which has been much more recent and brought on really by COVID has been the use by courts of remote hearings. I don't know whether you saw it in the States, but these things can have their pitfalls. And there was over here, at least on the news, uh, a lawyer in, I think, Texas, whose um, screensaver was a cat. And the judge couldn't get rid of this cat off the screen. and, And that caused considerable difficulties and amusement. Well, thankfully, I didn't have that. And actually, I found remote hearings quite easy to deal with. The only thing you have to be aware of, and I'm, I'm totally blind, is where you direct the camera. Otherwise, it sort of shows the wall behind you or something of that sort. And the, the judge has to say, look, left a bit, right a bit <laughs> until you get it right. But once, once you've worked that out, it, it's fine. As an aside, one of the interesting things of remote hearings and one of the arguments that have been put up over the years and were certainly prevalent when I came into the profession is that visually impaired lawyers were at a disadvantage in court because they could not see the body language of a witness. Now, my counter to that was, well, actually, if people want to lie, they're going to concentrate far more on how they look than on what they say and how they sound. And I found that 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 was held pretty true uh, over the years. But one of the consequences of remote hearings is that judges have started to think in terms of, well, I can't actually now see the body language of the witness. So what was an argument for many years is, I think, now gradually dissipating simply because in a remote hearing, you may see the witness's face, you can hear what they say, but you can't see the witness in the witness box in the same way that you can in open court. Most remote hearings at the moment are used for case management, but not exclusively. And Adal, you've probably had more experience than I have. I think that's me for the moment. Please interrupt with any questions that you think fit, but I'll pass back to Adal. Jeremy, I had a question for you right quick. Mm. This is Chris. And the the work that uh, was done as uh, in uh, representing families and children, was that like in abuse and neglect cases, like what we would call uh, uh, children's protective services type cases here? Yes, that's right. Yes. And what about, y'all talk about uh, barristers and solicitors. Are there attorneys that do primarily office practice, like writing writing wills and, and drafting contracts and that sort of thing? Yes, but very much so. And what is confusing is that in many courts, both solicitors and barristers have rights of audience, so can attend to represent clients. But in some of the higher courts, only barristers have those rights of audience. And we also have different rules for criminal cases and civil cases. So, for instance, in all criminal cases start in the magistrate's court, which is in front of a lay bench, usually. Everybody has a right of audience there. When you get to the Crown Court, which is the next level up and where the majority of serious, well, all serious trials are held, barristers have rights of audience, but you have to specially qualify as a solicitor if you want a right of audience there. And it was one that I never took up. So all my 
representation was in civil cases and, and as you say mainly in what you would call child protection matters yes charles has his hand raised charles go ahead i heard the discussion of the costs of becoming a barrister or a solicitor which can be prohibitive now i attended law school between 1968 and 71 and i had a very friendly rehabilitation counselor who arranged benefits which largely paid for living costs and uh, costs of supplies, etc. And I am been familiar with uh, the tendency of some rehabilitation counselors to be more strict about how they allocate funds for students. And um, I was wondering if in uh, the United Kingdom, if there is such a similar uh, system for assisting disabled students to bear the costs of attending college or law school. I think no is a simple answer. What there is, is a scheme called Access to Work. And there is a student side of that. I'm trying to... Adal, what's the name of the... There is a scheme for students. So when you're at university or college, there's something called the Disabled Students Allowance. And this That's is a... It government fund which will allow students to obtain additional equipment and resources so if you need uh, jaws or zoom tests or some other equipment at university or college that fund will allow you to be able to purchase it it will also cover things like an assistant or a reader that you may need uh, and it will assess you for other uh, adaptions that might be needed during your education such as additional time during examinations a separate room and things like that. But that is available. It is an assessed allowance, but it is available to all disabled students throughout college and university. And it is included in the professional solicitor's course. And well, not in the modern solicitor's course, it was included in what Jeremy described as the the legal practice course. But the rules regarding training for solicitors have recently changed, and it's not included in the more recent one. But aside from that, what there is also is there is, there is a statutory provision here in, in what's called the Equality Act, which requires institutions to make what are called reasonable adjustments for students with disabilities. And this puts an onus on the institution, so the university or college, to make adaptions for you. And that may include providing you with material in Braille or in large print or in electronic form or in, in any other form that, that might uh, assist. But it's... Uh, the term is reasonable adjustments and the interpretation that universities take on that differs depending on where you go. So in some sense, it's a little bit of potluck. But in most universities, they will make adjustments for you, but they won't provide you with additional equipment because that wouldn't be deemed to be an adjustment that they could provide. It would be something that you would have to apply through the disabled students allowance. Hopefully, does that answer the question, Charles? Yes, thank you. I think to add to that, what, what we're dealing with is an allowance that covers additional cost, not living cost or course fees, so that it, it's additional cost of equipment. And it is assessed, so it's not a given. That also continues when you're in work. and It morphs into what's called the access to work scheme. And again, if you do need to purchase equipment and much access equipment is quite expensive 
then you would apply to the access to work scheme and they would assess whether you need it in order to perform your work. There are two criteria. One is, do you need it for your job? Or if your job changes, do you need it to cater for the change? So it's, it's that, that additional expense you can obtain. Mr. Bell? So this question is for either one of you. I found as a, as a blind lawyer, as you said, that the advent of email in particular and basically the digitization of documents was, was a great help. But I also found that the advent of email intensified and speeded up the practice and the expectations of clients. We no longer had the ability to have the three weeks, or not the three days, I mean, to get a letter and respond and the client understanding that it would be some time for the person to write the letter and then, you know, three days. And so you had a little cushion. Whereas once I had email from clients, you know, I'd get an email at 10 in the morning and and one o'clock in the afternoon, they're on the phone saying, well, how come you haven't responded to my email? And so I found it necessary to, in a sense, hyper-specialize so that I could more readily respond to what was a more intensive time frame. And I wondered if either one of you experienced that same kind of issue. Not, not as, I mean, partly one of the things of representing children is they can't email you very much. Uh, so, um, but I do know what you mean. And I, I'm afraid as a, a partner in a firm, when fax machines first came in, I had a notice put up above the machine that said instant communication does not mean instant response because you can very easily get pressurized into into responding to something without having had proper time to think about it. And I'm afraid I was... I was never shy about saying to a client, you know, I need to think about this. Once I have, I'll get back to you. Anyway, I'm in court for the afternoon. So, <laughs> but yeah, you, you do have to be strong. You do have to prioritize. And, and certainly that, that has increased the pressure. I'll have a, a talk a bit, a, bit, a bit about my life as a barrister. So I'm slightly different to Jeremy in that, um, well, firstly, b- before I get onto that, I mean, one of the other differences in, in terms of solicitors and barristers is quite important is that 90 plus percent of solicitors are employed. They're partners in a firm. They work as employed salaried staff, as it were, whereas 95 percent of barristers are self-employed. We have our own practice. We all run our own practice. And although we're in chambers, chambers is more of an association, a group a collective of lawyers who effectively share an office building and may share admin, but we're all self-employed. So one of those pressures that does exist for solicitors, which is mentioned in terms of responding to emails, is left to the barrister alone. So whereas a solicitor may uh, have their secretary or their assistant do it, barristers will often be just lumbered with it. And as most of our days are in court, uh, clients will be left waiting. But one of the things that does help nowadays i think in terms of technology is that you can quickly well, I, I quickly will just audio dictate a reply to somebody uh, and a lot of my clients nowadays will want to communicate with me on whatsapp or on some other social media platform so they'll often just send me voice notes and i think i've had about 30 today uh, from a solicitor 
uh, wanting to do a case on Thursday. And it's a case of just listening to them through the day and just responding. But that's one of the, I suppose, pluses and minuses of modern technology. Unlike Jeremy, I came into the profession quite recently. I came from a career in financial services and I've moved into the law as a second career. And I've only been at the bar for some four years. In terms of technology, because most of my work is in court, I am lumbered with the day-to-day use of uh, thousands of pages of bundles. And I had the the pleasure of picking up a a 5,000-page bundle only a couple of weeks ago and navigating 5,000 pages uh, through a lengthy court hearing is extremely difficult if you're visually impaired. In terms of technology, I cart a laptop around with me, but I'm rapidly getting to the point that uh, I think I need to carry two laptops, one to be able to co- to navigate bundles and documents and the other one to navigate my own notes. And I think that's uh, one of the interesting things that uh, technology offers and detracts. So uh, a lot of my colleagues will walk around with uh, five or six lever arch files. I don't have to trouble myself with the back pains that are associated with that, but I, I do have to navigate them uh, in a different way. My day in terms of technology, uh, JAWS and Zoom text, and uh, what is surprisingly improved as the Microsoft magnifier and narrator tool that come with Windows now, but they can only offer limited assistance in, in terms of what documents can be read. I often get sent bundles, as I say, that run thousands of pages which somebody has just shoved under a scanner and scanned. They haven't been properly scanned in terms of text recognition and the OCR has not been run. So the computer will read them as images. So I will often have to spend many hours reconverting large documents into accessible documents. And one of the pros of uh, the COVID situation has been that courts in this country are now pushing for digital online platforms for submission of documents, whereas in the past it was all paper paper. But this is not a, a complete system. So in, in, in the UK, my practice is a general common law practice. I do the, the, the whole remit of crime and civil and family, including some of what uh, Jeremy does in terms of what our care and child children practices. And some courts have a complete digital system, whereas everything is put online and is fully accessible. Well, almost fully accessible, and other courts have nothing online and it's paper all the way. So this uh, inconsistency in the court system in the UK is, is, is problematic, to say the least, if you're visually impaired, and is certainly problematic if, it's, if you're somebody wanting to come into the profession. Most firms have great difficulty, solicitors' firms have great difficulty in adjust making those reasonable adjustments for visually impaired candidates because often when you're new in practice you don't really know what you need because the practice of law is quite different for every lawyer and everyone who's visually impaired doesn't have the same needs and the same capabilities of technology technology being uh, disparate and uh, not cohesive in terms of the assistive technology that's out there poses significant problems for new entrants into the profession. And I've had discussions over the last few weeks with several young students who want to come into practice law, but are deterred by the limited accessibility of material. Of course, in the US, you have the same accessibility in terms of material 
issues that we have. Like you, we have uh, LexisNexis and uh, the Thomson Reuters Westlaw for research purposes. But that's useful, but it's not the be-all and end-all of research. Not everything is on there. And only, only a few weeks ago, I had somebody ask me to research something from the 17th century. And you can appreciate that uh, researching law books from the 17th century are not going to be on Westlaw. So trawling the libraries of the Inns of Court is not a, a, a fun task if you're visually impaired and the material is barely readable to those who have full sight. So in terms of my technology, as I, say, I, I use JAWS and Zoom text to access material. The other significant practical issue is that in the UK, the courts are generally not blind accessible. They call themselves accessible because they have lifts. They're not talking lifts in most of the time. And one of the things we'll come to talk about in a minute is, is what uh, we've been doing as the Society of Visually Impaired Lawyers to expand uh, accessibility within the court system. Just navigating courts in this country can be a, an arduous and tedious task in itself. I was in the High Court last Wednesday. There are 80 plus courts in the building. There is practically no lighting through most of the building because it's a, a building which is several hundred years old and they refuse to uh, modernize it. And when you enter the building, they give you a printed map to find where you're going, which is very helpful if you're visually impaired, as you can appreciate. So that's a significant issue. And I think one of the, the advantages of COVID has been the use of technology. And I, I know this is a, also the case in the US. You, you've now got a, a lot of Zoom hearings and Teams hearings. And uh, I had the pleasure last week of appearing in a New York court, I believe in Part 42, dealing with a family case. And I was granted right of audience by a judge in New York. And thankfully, it is, or perhaps not thankfully, it was as equally chaotic in the New York court as it is in the UK with people <laughs> turning up at random. Uh, somebody turned up from a hearing from the week before and several other people turned up when they thought their hearing was that day and it wasn't due for three weeks and it was uh, continuously interrupted. So although online hearings are useful, the court's ability to manage them seems to be somewhat questionable at the moment in the UK and uh, certainly in the New York court, as it seems to be. And I think Jeremy mentioned the, the incident of the cat, which I think everybody saw on uh, YouTube and TikTok. I think one of the interesting, or perhaps not so interesting for the judge, uh, hearings that I had several months ago, somebody had just crawled out of bed and he didn't really seem to know what he was doing with his computer. He was fully sighted, so he had no excuse. And the camera was pointing downwards and he had no pants. So that was a, an interesting side for a judge there. But... Uh, Technology has its uses, and for many visually impaired students, or many visually impaired lawyers, the attendance at court is usually, I've, I've found from speaking to other lawyers, the most difficult part. The getting to court and messing around with the travel and the accessibility or lack thereof in court buildings has all now been diminished by Zoom and Teams hearings, which save considerable amount of time. I can now appear by remote hearing in two courts, 500 miles apart in the same day, which is something I could never do before. And I think for, for a lot of potential entrants who are visually impaired into the profession, I think the increase in remote hearings going forward would be very welcomed, I think. I would agree with that. I, I think that, um, as you say, accessibility to courts is a problem. Simply getting to and from courts because they the courts, the number of courts have been reduced, the number of court buildings have been reduced in an attempt to centralise. And 
not only do lawyers have problems getting to and from courts, but the general public do as well in many cases. And it, it, it is, accessibility generally is, is a problem. I think Jeremy mentioned that barristers are currently on strike. Now, this is the criminal barristers. As in the US, I think you have a, what's called a public defender scheme, I think. In, in criminal cases in the UK, there is an entitlement, particularly in serious criminal cases, for the defendant to, be, to receive public funding for their lawyers. But that public funding in criminal cases is abysmal and has led to a significant decline in criminal practitioners. If anybody is interested in transferring to the UK legal profession, criminal law is not the way to go if you're going to make any money. The average criminal practitioner is not going to be earning, particularly on the junior end, any more than what would be about $30,000 a year. And they would have to be working their butts off every single day to get that, I would think. And that's an unfortunate further deterrent for those who are visually impaired coming to the profession because there will be additional expenses of travel. And if you're only getting paid seven or eight pound an hour for the work you do, the additional costs of travel and accessibility and other associated costs for those with visual impairments is a serious detractor for coming into the profession. Now, civil, there is very little publicly funded civil legal aid, as it were. Most civil commercial claims are privately paid, and most family cases are privately paid, save for those where there are public interests or child, what Jeremy described as child care proceedings, where the state is uh, interfering or trying to take your children. For those, you will receive public funding. That public funding is slightly better than that, which uh, lawyers will receive for crime, but uh, only slightly. So privately paid work is the way to go, I think, for anybody looking to transfer. Other technology that I use, uh, I found that uh, an interesting side note, appearing in court on a day-to-day basis, is that uh, the in, I think it's slightly different in the US, where you have a, a lectern where you will uh, stand to give, uh, make submissions or when you're cross-examining or examining witnesses. In the English courts, certainly in the lower courts, you are basically left at a table and uh, having to stand up for six hours at a table when your uh, screen is about two foot below you is a is, is quite a difficult task. So what I've actually done is created a portable lectern, which I carry around with me for all court hearings. That adds about another five kilograms of weight, but it, it's a useful tool because I can stand for many hours and uh, not have to reach down or stretch down or look down at a screen, and perhaps the most useful piece of technology, uh, it's not an accessible piece of technology necessarily, but it's perhaps the most useful thing that I've bought over the last couple of years, are bone conduction headphones. So for anybody who is using a speech synthesizer, having to wear a headset which blocks your ears is extremely difficult whilst you're trying to listen to a witness and a judge and several people behind you shouting and asking you questions uh, and to use the screen reader at the same time. The bone conduction headphones sit on your head and will conduct sound through your skull and therefore your ears are left open. And I think that's the most useful piece of technology, particularly for courtroom advocacy that uh, I've uh, found over the past couple of years. Um, It'd certainly be interesting to hear uh, from those who are trial advocates amongst uh, the group here as to what technology you will use and uh, uh, how you've adapted to work within your uh, day-to-day lives. But I think those are the main parts of my day. My, my day is spent 
say, in and out of court. I uh, try to avoid the interaction with clients that Jeremy has on a day-to-day basis with emails, but uh, the use of social media and communication is uh, is very useful, and I, I would uh, endorse that for clients particularly. As I, One of the things I find is that sending 10-page letters to clients which they'll never read are uh, it seems to be a fruitless and pointless exercise. So I've started to send WhatsApp voice notes as my after-hearing attendance notes to clients because I know they'll at least listen to them and I can at least check that they have listened to them for future reference. But any questions on that before we move on to discuss uh, the the Soval Society in the UK? Steve? Thank you both for a very interesting presentation. I'm interesting uh, if you could comment uh, on some attitudinal factors. For example, when I was a legal aid lawyer, I found that I experienced less discrimination uh, less uh, suspicion on account of my blindness and less doubt about me as a person from my clients and perhaps from any other group of people I've ever had to deal with in my life. Can you talk about the re- response uh, or the impact on the response that visual impairment has had in your relationship uh, with uh, those for whom you act, uh, with the solicitors who instruct you, and with the judges? I think speaking for myself, I it may be that I've been lucky, but I apart from in very, very early in my profession, I've not had a problem. And I think the reason is that if a client comes to a solicitor, then they kind of assume a degree of competency. Now, maybe that assumption has been eroded over the years, but it wasn't something that ever... I've never had a client ask me, you know, can you represent me as a visually impaired person? I've never had that question asked. I think if they had asked, I'd have told them they were in the wrong place, possibly, and they could go somewhere else if they wanted to. I may not have been that polite about it. So that's been not a problem. I have had the odd problem with a judge, and I found that you you just have to stick to your guns. So a judge will say, well, why can't you do this, Mr. Brown? Or why can't you you access that document? And I'll say, well, you know, give me a moment and I will be able to, but it's not going to be as quick perhaps as somebody who's just flicking a page and got it in front of them. And gradually, again, it, it's difficult when it happens, but you kind of just have to get through it. And and you tend to find that a judge will only do that once. And usually it's because they want to assert their authority and power over the proceedings rather than specifically to get at you. And you can then hear them starting to get at the other advocates in court in a similar way. So generally, they may use that, but it's not specifically aimed at you. They've just got it in for everybody that day. Other lawyers, again, I've not had a problem. Um, And gradually, I think as you become more experienced, you... (laughs) You find that you're, when you're sort of aging, you find that you're sort of the oldest there and get respect because of that anyway. But but it, it, there have been incidents, but but few and far between, and, and ones that you can you can get through as far as I have come across anyway. I mean, my experience largely is the same as Jeremy. Jeremy, I, I don't, I haven't really had any serious experience with clients. Clients are on the whole uh, have been pretty good. Uh, and not too many have ever really commented on it. There is the the reluctance, I find, from some clients to discuss the visual impairment, which sometimes is good and sometimes not so good. The only real experience I've had of any kind of negativity was also from a judge. When I told him that I couldn't, I think it was actually a video call, and my 
my screen, uh, my camera was being uh, playing up because of, I think, the, the, the Zoom text or some software was interfering with it. And the judge didn't seem to understand that I was visually impaired. And he said, well, when will that situation be resolved? And I said, well, judge, the situation will be resolved when medical science reaches that point. Uh, <laughs> wasn't best pleased. But I think what else is there to be said here? And when I go into court, I will now take a note. I have a standard note, which I just simply hand into the judge's clerk and say, that will say counsel for whichever party is visually impaired. He's wearing a headset. This is not to be rude. He's not uh, listening to music. He is visually impaired. And most judges will understand that, though um, in some cases I've turned up at court and have not read the note. And I said, why are you wearing a headset? Please take it off. And then you go through the motions of explaining to the judge again, which is a... Uh, unfortunate but generally i find it's with the very with the older generation of judges most of the younger people are, are more understanding and uh i have been brought up in a to, to understand that uh you know there are differences and if you're visually impaired then uh it's not such a big issue but i think that's the only serious issue that i've ever had in my uh this is chris prentice by the way and i i'm low vision uh and uh, i would take a, a legal pad into court a lot of times in civil cases and because uh, I've done civil and criminal both and I just have a blank pad there and the, the attorney on the, at the other table, he'd set his stuff down. He'd ha- have all these notes and everything. And he looked over there and he said, where's your notes? I said, Oh, you mean you have to write everything down? <laughs> I've got to already know the case. I don't, I don't need to write a bunch of stuff down. And, and usually through the course of the case, I might write one or two words down to remind me of questions. But, you know, when I went to court, I knew it was in my file and I knew where the issues were. And so I didn't worry about having to, to read things or remember things. I knew what the items of evidence were and, and those, those things were all marked. And, and so that sometimes it works to your advantage because you kind of catch them off guard. It kind of intimidates them a little bit when they realize that you didn't write all your questions down. You, you actually know what your questions are or where you're going to go. Cause I try not to script myself because if you get scripted, you, you tend to stop listening to the witnesses. And so sometimes for uh, when you're questioning witnesses, it's a lot easier to follow your questions, know where you want to go, but you kind of got to base that on where the witnesses take you. And sometimes the witnesses don't go down the track that you expected them to go, or they, they change their, they change their mind somewhere in the middle of the testimony. You're like, wait a minute. That's not what your deposition said. That's not what you said when we talked earlier, but it can be something that you can work to your advantage uh, simply by being prepared. Because I think one of the most important things that you can do as a trial attorney, whether you're in the UK or in Texas or anywhere else, be more prepared than your opponent. We currently have a raised hand in Zoom. That's uh, Jim Crott from Miami, Florida. Great presentations, guys. Age does count. That did make a difference as I was finishing up my practice, I have to agree. I only know one other guy that had a mind like Chris Prentice and didn't have to write it all down. I was a huge note-taker and writer, so I admire those that don't have to. Um, my question is with respect to when you were talking about the electronic document systems in the courts. I never used those when I retired 10, 12 years ago. They were just coming into vogue. But most of them in the states that I got familiar with were graphic-based to even use 
and thus really not usable by blind folk. Are you having a better experience with accessing digital documents in the UK? Well, the the digital systems in the UK, because a lot of them are so new, the old versions were very like what you described. They were graphical platforms which were useless if you were visually impaired, and the, the accessible software wouldn't work with them at all. Now, there are a few in the UK that are recently being built by the government departments, and those are accessible and will work pretty well with most assistive technology. Some of the older ones which are still out there do require adjustment. So if you're using JAWS, for example, you will have to have a script written for it, especially so it can work with those graphical interfaces. Otherwise, JAWS will not read it at all. But most of the modern ones are pretty good. One of the difficulties when using Braille, as I did, is a lot of stuff, uh, particularly in the type of cases that I worked on, was password protected simply because you, you need to preserve the confidentiality of the parties. And, and uh, if you're sending documents to court, that has to be preserved. There is, I think, with most Braille technologies, quite a difficulty in getting into documents that are password protected. Certainly, I found that. So I would have to actually get my PA to get the document and then send it to me in unprotected form once she'd got uh-huh. the password. So that is a problem with that sort of document. And I, and I think will continue to be. Interestingly, the Civil Justice Council in this country who govern court rules and things are starting to think about how they can use wider technologies in court proceedings. And one of the things I think Sovel is going to be very much involved in is designing accessibility into the system from the start, which is much easier than trying to graft accessibility onto something that already exists. So hopefully we'll have that opportunity when they actually start looking at these things on a a more coherent basis than than exists at the moment. But there is actually a willingness for the government to look at accessibility issues at the front end? I don't know that willingness would be the word. More an acceptance that the Equality Act says that they probably should would be better. And of course, an underlying agenda that there just may not be the resources to do it. So it's going to be a battle. We've been fighting the ADA for almost 35 years now, and it's still far from done here. So so Jeremy, we haven't got a lot more time. Mm. I know there's, there's another meeting. Up. So do you want to briefly talk about Sobel and history and what we do? Very briefly. I mean, Sobel has been going since about 1976-77 and actually resulted from some research that I did when I was trying to avoid actual work after being a student and looked at visually impaired lawyers and their needs and found that so many lawyers were around all using different methods to work, different ways of doing things and I, I felt that essentially there should be a networking organisation to try and look at best practice to try and simply pool knowledge. So that's how it came about originally. I suppose the main issues that we've been dealing with over the years, and this is a constant theme, is accessibility. Many organisations, as you all know, design their websites, design their online activities without really any thought as to how they can be accessible to visually impaired people. And that's the same with the legal profession. So we have a constant battle with 
accessibility of documents, accessibility of online facilities, accessibility of websites, and banging the drum that it's very, it's quite simple if you design it in. It's a difficult drum to bang because, of course, most organizations don't even think to consult you. So I think we're doing better now than we did, particularly with the court service. But as I say, it is a it is a constant battle and one of the issues that we're dealing with regularly. Also, again, a constant battle is actually the, the making available of information. That is easier now, as we've described through technologies that I'm sure you've experienced as well. But it's by no means perfect. And again, some organizations will make information available in forms that are really not accessible. So again, that's another issue that is is constant. The third issue that we're coming across at the moment and is reasonably new is the qualification exams for solicitors, which are now with a different format and run by an organization which is a privately based organization who have started to undertake their own views as to what does and does not constitute a reasonable adjustment. Now, this isn't just a visual impairment issue, and we've joined with other disabled groups to try and ensure that these examination papers are accessible. And that is everything from being computer-readable, being readable through JAWS, being able to be put in Braille if necessary, to time, to the facilities that are available for taking an examination because they are supposed to happen centrally, to the time taken for taking an examination and to what the organisation will decide are reasonable adjustments. And one of the problems we've had recently, and again, which we're trying to get to the bottom of at the moment, is that the organisation concerned has what they call liaison officers and They encourage applicants when applying for the exam to state whether or not they need reasonable adjustments and what they need. And originally, we were told that there would then be a negotiation. Well, that's fair enough as to what might or might not be possible. What we found is that the officers are asking for independent evidence that the reasonable adjustment is necessary. And that's not just evidence that somebody is, say, visually impaired, but it's evident, if you like, it takes, has to take the form of an assessment of that person. Now, those assessments, there aren't those who are able to do them. They don't exist. And even if they, the only possibility is people who work in access to work, they can do assessments. But those take months, by which time you've missed the examination window. So we have, at the moment, really quite a big issue with qualification examinations. Now, I think those are probably the three main things, two of which are just ongoing and one of which has cropped up and stupidly and unnecessarily cropped up because a little bit of forethought, a little bit of work with the regulatory authorities beforehand would have probably avoided that problem. And it's now a problem and it needs to be dealt with. Adar, have I missed things? No, but uh, we, we, uh, we've certainly run out of time. We've overrun. So apologies <laughs> to everyone for running our time. Thank you very much to everybody, uh, the ACB and the Lawyers Group. And Steve, thank you very Indeed. much. Apologies that we couldn't be with you. Hopefully, one of uh, one of you guys, if willing, could uh, give a reciprocal talk to the Society of Visually Impaired Lawyers in, in, in London, either in person or by Zoom. 
and certainly something we can discuss as we are trying to build uh, links with as many visually impaired groups uh, around the world to uh, assist lawyers, uh, new lawyers, those who have lost their vision or those who are looking to come into the profession, looking for any assistance that we can uh, provide or that others can share amongst them. So thank you all very much. If there are any further questions, I don't want to overrun your next meeting, but if there are any further questions, I think Steve Mendelson has my email address and would be happy to answer any questions that anyone may have. Likewise, anything can be passed on to me as well. Adal and Jeremy, thank you all so much for joining us today. Adal, sorry you couldn't come in person, but maybe next year and uh, we can certainly talk about having one of us uh, participate in one of your meetings over there. I think that would be great and continue the dialogue and Thank you to everyone who's listened and participated here on ACB Media and on Zoom and here in the room in Omaha. Uh, thank you all so much, and uh, we appreciate your participation and your activities with the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys. Thanks to everyone, and everyone have a great day and a, a great summer.